Welcome to the Let's Talk International Education podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Benny, founder of Top Schools. We're here for you, whether you're a parent, grandparent, a teacher, as long as you're interested in education, you're in the right place. We work hard to bring relevant, up-to-date and possibly controversial information on all things related to education. In this first season, we've invited education leaders from around the world, as well as parents just like you and I. We're pleased you found us. Don't forget to subscribe. And here's today's episode. Welcome to this webinar with myself, uh, Ruth, uh, from Top Schools. And the topic today is bilingualism, struggles and solutions. And believe me, I have struggled. So joining me today um, from Mulberry House, uh, we have Jessica Yeh Trainer as CEO and Susan Ward, Principal of Mulberry House. Hello, Jessica and Susan. Hi. Hello. Thank you. Welcome to everyone that's joining us today. I think we'll have some more people joining. It was a very popular session, a very, I think the title resonates. It resonates with me for sure. So I've known Jessica and Susan actually for for many, many years. So Jessica, just very briefly, tell us a little bit about Mulberry House. Okay, sure. Hi, everyone. Greetings from Shenzhen. I'm currently sitting in Shenzhen. We started Mowbray House six years ago and originally started as Mandarin Immersion, mainly for my kids because we were in a very English-speaking environment. And then gradually we have developed into bilingual immersion, dual language, and right now we're doing English immersion in Shenzhen. So we've kind of gone into expertise into Mandarin, expertise into English, and then obviously um, parallelly dual language. Yeah. And so for those of you who are watching, if you've got any questions, there's nothing that Jessica can't answer about this topic of bilingualism, believe me. So any questions you have, just pop them in the chat, raise your hand, and we'll try to integrate them as we go, rather than you keep all your questions um, until the end. So bilingualism, struggles and solutions. I feel like parents struggle a lot with the definitions, the terminology. We have a lot of jargon around this whole idea of, yes, most of the parents we meet, they want their children to be at least bilingual, if not trilingual, and biliterate. But what's your definition of bilingualism or how does Mulberry House do bilingualism? So when I first started, because I grew up in the U.S., I had a lot of influence in in the way the U.S. has done its English and Spanish immersion, and then in Canada, English and French immersion. So to me, because I am also Asian and my husband is English, I feel like bilingual definitely means a balanced bilingual, means somebody who... Number one is fluent, so that's bilingual. And secondly, biliterate is also very important for me. And that also comes with biculture. And I've met with many, many parents now. Sometimes I have met parents who says, I don't care about my kids being biliterate. And some of that could have been American families who just said, who they think by um like fluency is already enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, what we are trying to achieve really is all bilingual, which means fluency, biliterate, which means building both English and Chinese strong and foundation in, in literacy and by culture, because we celebrate both the Asian and the Western culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had a question that's gone out of my head. I think that I've read a lot about this and, you know, we've talked about this and, and most of the research that exists in the States is Spanish English. But I feel that there's a lot of issues when you try to transfer that to, and even Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, I think we have a, a very unique language environment, even compared to Shenzhen or, or mainland yeah. China. At least it's more simple. Whereas in Hong Kong, we've got Cantonese in the mix as well. So 
it's really complicated. Where where do parents start? Let, let's let's assume that. And for those of you who are watching, if you want to pop your child's ages in in the chat, that will give us a sense of sort of where you're at. But you know, if you are a, a parent of a very very young child or even pregnant, because we know that those people tune into things like this, where's the best place to start if they're wanting bilingualism and biliteracy? It really starts with an analysis of what your goal is and what your family makeup is, right? Obviously, right now we offer a different program in Hong Kong versus Shenzhen because the dynamic is different. And so it really is looking at a child has 8 to 12 waking hours. It's looking at where is your child spending the time? Your child is spending time at home, at school, and also at play dates, right? So like a third of each. So if you are speaking mainly Chinese at home, then you are speaking Chinese. Jessica. Sorry, Mandarin. Okay. <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yes. I think it's, it's important to be clear. Yeah. So right now we only only offer bilingualism in terms of Mandarin Chinese. We currently don't offer Cantonese. So when I talk about Chinese, I'm really talking about Mandarin Chinese. So you should be looking at, you know, what's your family makeup? What's your a majority of the speaking languages? I, I've met people who are, you know, French mixed Taiwanese, but speaking English at home, and the child end up not speaking French or Chinese because they're they're using the 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 husband and wife is using a common language of English and actually the child could be you could looking at dividing the child's day dividing the child's week into alternate day exposure and so it's really I think it's the really the planning that's very important once mm-hmm. you have the planning you could implement a very consistent routine for your child and also whether you want your child to be biliterate that's another question so if you do want your child to be biliterate actually you should be going backward. If you want your child to be biliterate in Mandarin, Chinese, and English, you should be looking at primary school that already supplies the academic language in the Chinese and going backwards. If you don't care about your child's literacy, then actually a lot of school is able to keep up the fluency part. So there. It's the planning that's very important. So when we meet a parent, we give them a a card where in the card it says, what's your family background? What is the language that's spoken at home? And who are your child's friends? So if you're speaking Chinese at home, but if your child's friends are all French, then you want the third language. Maybe that third language is what you're looking at school. You should be looking at all three components add up together. Because the child has, you know, eight hours. And if the child is able to immerse, you know, three hours per language, a child really could be trilingual easily. Mm. So to follow that up, Ruth, with your question, um, at Mulberry House, right from birth, we offer playgroups. So we provide lots of options for parents. We have pure English playgroups. We have pure Mandarin playgroups. All parents can sign up for both playgroups so that across the week they're getting the variety of languages. So, you know, we do believe it starts from an early age. We want to expose children to the languages so that, you know, they are getting that foundation understanding. And, you know, the research is out there now that we know right from when children are in the womb, they're absorbing those languages. So the more exposure we can give them, even at that very young age, is vital. So, you know, we start there and we move that 
also into the kindergarten. Yeah. You know, I started my children in these playgroups when they were four months old and my family um, back in the UK were horrified and thought I was being, you know, um, what, what, what kind of parenting style is that? But I had a very specific objective in mind. So you're, you're quite right. I think that it does start with the planning. And Jessica, you talk about which schools can support that. I mean, we, we can help with that, but actually very few schools. We need more schools that can support that. And we do know of a couple more that are coming in this year, next year and the year after which is good because that's where the demand is. Almost all parents tell us that they want their children to be bilingual. Let me, let me ask you this, Jessica. You, you've mentioned a few times that, that parents might not be so keen on the biliteracy objective, which comes with a whole host of challenges. Do you know why that is? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's possible to have a child that's perfectly bilingual but then cannot read and write Chinese? And what would be the consequences, implications of that later on down the road? Yeah, I, I mean, I've come across quite a lot of examples. I think is the it partly is sometimes where I've met I've met some Australian families and American families where um, the parents really enjoy our playgroup style because in a way it's a lot more creative than instructional based language type because we're actually early childhood uh, space and, and nursery right and so they enjoy that but they don't think their children could be biliterate because they don't speak the language themselves mm-hmm. and so partly I really believe I've seen kids who are Americans now in ISF in sixth grade and they speak better Chinese potentially than other Chinese kids because the Chinese families focus less on Chinese because they want to focus on English mm-hmm. it is not about it is not about your family makeup it, it, in a way at the end of the day if you're able to put in more effort your kids can do it right especially if you start early if you're developing the child's language you know between what we call zero to five, where the language critical period, mm-hmm. that means the child could be exposed to at least three languages as first language. Just like mm-hmm. if you are in a mixed marriage, so if you are Chinese and your, your husband is French, so your child will be fluent in Chinese and French if you stick to Chinese and French mm-hmm. and gradually you build up the literacy part. So number one, I feel like parents, because they don't have it, so they don't feel like their children can do it. Secondly, I have seen some parents give up in the middle. So we have sent quite a lot of kids to ISF, you know, when they're intaking at four, but at five and six, when the literacy homework gets up there, they feel like they don't want to do the homework. They feel like the support actually is a, it's a lot. And it's a shame that they give up because their kids are already fluent and actually they could keep going. It's just a it, it is Chinese language is not the same as Spanish, right? In terms of bilingualism, it does require a lot more practice because it's um it's it's the the graphic shapes. It takes more practice. So late, later on, it becomes commitment. Uh, however, I, I do believe if you expose early and also you give exposure in a fun way, not in a language kind of boring way, then your children your children will like it. Where I've seen kids give up Chinese when they're nine years old, they're like, I hate Chinese, even though Chinese families, they hate Chinese, is because the type of school they go to are language schools who are, you know, just repeating. And that's really boring. The point is really to engage the children to like it, to like the activities, like the culture, like going on trips and truly embrace the language as part of either, you know, as a first language or as a second language, but, you know, still love it. Yeah, and, and I can I, I can follow that up too, Ruth. With you know, in the school we see children who come in, for example, with with no English, 
and mm. they do a full immersion English program. And within a few months, we, in fact, within a few weeks, we actually see the language coming out. But within a few months, the parents are coming back to us saying, you know, I'm amazed that my child can can speak or can re- start to read and write now. So um, they as Jessica said, you know, the the biliterate, sometimes parents don't think that is possible, but actually what we see in the kindergarten is that it is possible. We do everything in a play-based way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything we do has a learning objective behind it. So it's not random play. We have a a solid curriculum that we use and the way we implement it makes, you know, the, the learning environment engaging and inspiring for children. And we do see that rapid language development, whether it's our bilingual dual language classes in the morning or it's pure immersion classes in the afternoon. We, we actually see that development in children, whether it's the a chi- an English speaker coming to learn Chinese or whether it's a Chinese speaker coming to reinforce their English. Yeah. I want to ask you, Susan, about the second scenario. I No doubt. I mean, we, we know that... Um, you know, a, a Western style or Reggio style of, you know, a play group can be a lot of fun and the kids can get very engaged. But when we think about a Chinese language play group, a lot of those play groups out there, they've got a bit of a different style of teaching. So just tell us a bit more about how the play group, the Chinese immersion play group, how children can learn th- through activities which are fun. Sure. We we do our play groups um, the same as our kindergartens. We we do a lot of sensory play. So, you know, we do start like most play groups with a, you know, meeting or a circle time and reinforcing certain songs and the names of the children in the class and all those kind of things. But then we move on to doing a range of different activities. So, you know, whatever the teacher teaches in that circle time, they then reinforce with some activities following that up. Mm. So it's not different vocabulary every week. It's not different information. We're reinforcing that same information and we're reinforcing that information through songs and games and activities that the children enjoy. We also incorporate sensory play. You know, I think we're hearing so much research now about how sensory play helps all the neurons in the brain connect. So it's really important for young children in play groups and in kindergarten to be doing sensory play. So we incorporate a lot of sensory play into what we do as well. So, you know, those brain neurons are firing away as they're learning the language at the same time. So again, it's it's fun. We get the the aunties or the parents, whoever's bringing the children involved as well. So, you know, it's it's very holistic and we're covering a range of topics and a range of different things within the session. Mm. When does it naturally become a bit less fun? So when do the children start to learn to write and when does the dreaded dictation start? <laughs> and, and yeah, We, in, uh, in, in the kindergarten, we do start in K1, we start the phonics process. So children start learning individual phonic sounds. And in K2, they're doing more with the reading and the writing of the phonic sounds. So we follow a particular program, which is developmental across all year levels. The writing process starts really from pre-nursery. We don't encourage pre-nursery age children to write, but we do do a lot of pre-writing activities. So activities such as Play-Doh or, you know, artwork or manipulative play, which helps to develop those fine motor skills. So we call this 
pre-writing activities. So even in pre-nursery, every single day, our children are doing activities that help develop the coordination, the fine motor skills, vertical drawing and things like that, which again help to develop the skills that children need for when they start that writing process. Mm -hmm. So in K1, they do that as well. In K1, we're encouraging children, again, with sand, with a range of different manipulatives to, again, start looking at different shapes and things that they make. We know that English is quite different from Chinese in that there's lots of unusual shapes. So we have to start that process early. Then in K2, or actually, sorry, the second half of K1, they do start that writing process. And then in K2, they're writing more, they're writing words and sentences, and K3 as well. Is that the same for Chinese, Jessica? Because in my experience, my children learn to read Chinese much earlier than they learn to read English because it's a pictogram, whereas they yeah, need to pick up their phonics first for English. So when do they learn to, to write, Jessica? <laughs> Sorry, if I say six months, do you think I have the most tiger? You can explain. Start at six months because if parents go to our playgroup, they realize that we enforce all of the characters are related to dates very early. That start at six months. They learn and, to read, um, right? To read, obviously. And between six months to two years, we go through 55 high-frequency words. So all of the high-frequency words are currently being used in the six-month program through two years. And that six-month, that uh, 55 high-frequency word basically composes of all of the strokes and radicals that will be used later on because um, Chinese is a pictogram. And pictogram is a a composite of, you know, there's five different structures surrounding left, right, top, bottom, and all of the different Structures. So we basically pull out all the used frequent structure to be enforced between zero to two. And mm-hmm. it works because you are giving children as in kind of shapes, right? You're not like if we were starting to teach flower, one of the pictures that we have in the school is that the children are using flowers to make the petals of the flower. So, so in a way, they don't think they're reading the letter flower. They are doing the process of the flower, making yeah. association. And if the same thing as stone, so they're using the stone to patch up the a stone character so it's vivid and is memorable and it's not a dictation because it, it cannot be dictation because kids under two cannot go through dictation they won't remember it anyways it is through a sensory more of a sensory experience they really remember the character and so that works and so my kids later on in primary school now they're in isf they do dictation at you know, they do one, one every week, there's a dictation, but they don't think of it as a chore at all. They, I mean, they never say they hate school. They really love school. So I would imagine the academic, because of the foundation is not that it is a chore. It, you love it. So right. in a way, it doesn't become a chore. Also in that school, it's not a repetition of a hundred times. It's a repetition of like five times. But so this then also comes down it. to starting early. Um, starting early starting really early and then what's normal you know what what children consider to be a part of normal school is you know certain activities that they wouldn't necessarily do in a a fully English western style preschool we've got a couple of questions coming in and they they all relate really I I know that we're talking about babies and we're talking about starting early and then k1 k2 I think that the anxiety from parents really does come when they start to get a little bit older, because like you say, things, it starts to unravel. Let's be honest. We've seen it a million times. Good intentions. Why do those good intentions and good habits, why does it start to break down so often for, for families in Hong Kong? 
from a school's perspective, it comes down to culture. I think. And the culture of our school is bilingual and biliterate because, and, and by culture. So Susan's team in the typo side and Betty's team in the South side, both under the team are bilingual speakers. So there's English speakers, there are Chinese speakers. A lot of the Chinese speakers already speak English. So biculturally, they could implement both strong Chinese and strong English, where I have seen some of the schools that they, if they have more of a Western culture, they will not to be able to teach the Chinese part as strong as they want because the leader and the implementation and the curriculum are led by Chinese English right, or Western. And so if if you have more Chinese and maybe Cantonese or local style, you will see that the English implementation is more toward as a second language. So some of the schools will say they have their bilingual, but bilingual for me, bilingual, the letter B-I must mean at least 50-50 or whatever you're weakened, you give it a bit more than 50. So if you're, you call yourself bilingual and you have either Chinese or English to be implemented for 15 to 20 minutes a day, that's not really bilingual. It's got to be exceeding that 50%. Mm. So if you're only doing 15 minutes of either Chinese or English, realistically, what can children intake? The children Mm. will intake a song and maybe a word or maybe a story. And if you have diverse language levels within the class, the teacher will tend to aim at the lowest level. So the more advanced kids really, unless you stream, right? If you stream also, that's okay. But if you don't stream 15 minutes to 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. implementation wise, it's very hard to take away any content. And later on, that 15 minutes becomes 50. But still, you know, in primary school, if children are spending what in some schools, it's 30 minutes, three times a week or 45, 50 minutes every single day. And parents, I mean, I'm quite happy to say quite confidently that if parents think that's enough, isn't. No, you know, you're in an English medium school. And then tell me, Jessica, we we were talking or I was reading what you'd written about what you define as a pure language, that would be what you would say is a pure language lesson, right? When children are going off to have a Chinese lesson every day. Can you explain a bit more? Uh, A pure language school or pure language class means that not taking in the, the respective of children's cognitive development. So if I were to teach, if I take intake a kid that's two-year-old versus I intake a kid that's six years old, and both of them has no English coming in or no Chinese coming in, the language level is the same, right? Because both of them cannot speak a word in that language. However, cognitively, they're really very different. A two-year-old are thinking about like Peppa Pig and Pink and Blue and Lego. A six-year-old could be, I don't know, a lot more beyond than thinking about science and a lot more interesting stuff. So if you are doing a pure language instruction, you will be teaching hello and one, two, three and colors and shapes. And that to a six-year-old is boring because as also the six-year-old, their cognitive development has already developed, right? Or whatever their first language is, they already form their world of comprehension. You're teaching that six-year-old in terms of hello in a very in a way, boring language sense, it's not able to engage them. For a two-year-old, however, you could teach them in an immersion style and, you know, get them to actually touch and everything. So language instruction, pure language instruction without taking into cognitive development, it's not the best way. So if a language class, you see the children between a two-year-old and a six-year-old, if, if the age group are more than, let's say, two years it's already miles difference. You can see a native English speaker at four-year-old and a non-native English speaker at four and a half, five. The, the gap is massive. 
So pure language without taking into all of the other aspects holistically, it's not effective. And that's the power of immersion, Ruth. You know, that, that's what, you know, I've worked in a range of different schools. And when I first came to a school that was doing dual language, I, I was a little bit sceptical, but the power of immersion really does make a difference. You know, children are getting that holistic language all day, every day. They're getting uh, sentence structure. They're getting grammar, you know, or past and present tense, all those, that holistic part of learning a language as they do when they're in the womb. When it's done in many schools as a subject, they're really just getting vocabulary, colours, numbers, shapes, hello, goodbye. So there is a huge difference in what the children are absorbing. And yes, they might not immediately be able to turn around and talk in a sentence in another language, but they are absorbing that information and they're absorbing that information on a daily basis. So, you know, that's what I often say to parents. I think immersion is very powerful, very, very powerful. What are the typical questions that parents might ask you when you explain this? Or the typical, uh, did I say questions or objections? I think one of the ones I hear a lot is, well, what if they don't understand? What if I put my child into an immersion class and they have absolutely no foundation in that language? He's not going to understand. That won't work. What, what, do, you, what do you say to that? And it will be for the first lesson. But as I said earlier, we, we're often repeating a lot of the things. We have songs. We do it through a play-based way. So the children are actually enjoying what they're doing. You know, we don't, we don't start with scientific concepts that they're not going to understand. You know, it is step-by-step. Step. It is progressive. You know, we start where children are at. One of the things that I think is unique to our school is that we actually individualise each child's learning. So when a child comes to us, we initially look at where their knowledge is at and then work from there. So, you know, again, as Jessica said earlier, if you were in a classroom with 25 children, the teacher is teaching one thing to the whole children. You know, everybody's getting the same. If it's numbers one to five, everyone's getting numbers one to five. But some of those children might already know that. Mm. Others are struggling with that. So what we do is we see where each child is at and the ones who already know numbers one to five will move on five to ten. The ones who are struggling with number one even will work with them on numbers one and two. So and that's what we do with language and at and we take it from there. We use play-based methods. You know, there is a lot of repetition. Our teachers break down the language and use the same language every day. So the children become familiar with certain words and key concepts. And there's no translation happening, is there, in these classes? No. So, yeah, I mean, we often used to use the expression sink or swim, but they all swim. They all swim, yes. For sure. For yeah. sure. No need to no need to translate because children obviously they can learn a lot faster than us adults. And so with this question, most of the time I go back and ask the parent, it's just like learning your first language. So if you are putting your child into Chinese language immersion or French language immersion, think about how your child first pick up the first language, which is let's say it's English. And the first day when you spoke to the child, you your child might also not understand, but you do it through your actions, your context, your association and your all of the immersion that we call all of that immersion because it's a surrounding context so 
if the child can learn the first language that way, then can learn the second first language that way, a third language that way, as long as enough exposure is given. Yeah. And I think there used to be concern that if a child was learning more than one language, it would have an impact on the second language or it would have an impact on the first language and they couldn't learn as much. But research has blown all that out the window now. And we know that children can learn more than one language at a time. We do. However, we're in Hong Kong and then practical considerations start to take over. There's a lot of bad advice out there, let's be honest. We, we do hear a lot of teachers in kindergartens or even speech therapists that say, well, no, actually, you should focus on your first language first. And there are other schools out there that are very, very vocal. And they say, we believe in mother tongue teaching. They, we think the first language needs to be consolidated first. I think that we all do not agree with that is is. Are we on the same page, Jessica? Unless I have seen where the kids, unless the kids truly, truly have identified with speech delay mm -hmm. and most of the time. So because I work with a lot of mixed families, a lot of multilingual children, a lot of the times the parents will come over and say, um, my children are still not speaking at 18 months old. And I will be like, you have three languages at home, which mm -hmm. means in a, in a monolingual family, a child typically listens to about uh, 500 to 1,000 vocabulary by the year when they're two. And mm -hmm. if you have three languages, that means this child is getting about 330 in each language. So mm -hmm. to form the actual speech pattern, in a way, some of the language will be mixed. And another way is that the vocabulary within that language is not enough. So you need to go through the hurdle and wait a little bit longer. If you truly suspect speech delay, then like seeing a specialist is probably the best. But so far, I think we have must have worked with more than a thousand to two thousand parents so far. We don't see that. We see if the parents got committed they get through that hurdle. But they panic, don't they? I mean, like I say, practical considerations start to take over. So we're in Hong Kong. Yeah. I work in school admissions. You know, you, your, your children are presumably moving on to a primary school, which would be at five years old, if not before, let's be honest. So when they go to their school, they're going to need to demonstrate either Mandarin or English. If parents are coming with different language languages, European languages or other languages, Unfortunately, inevitably, they, they lower priority for that family. And I do understand why. I don't have the solution, but these are practical considerations that, that tend to take over, right? Yeah. So all of these are, they are research-backed, right? Obviously, bilingualism is not new. Like, mm -hmm. how many bilingual, bilingual countries are there in Europe and U.S. speaking Spanish and English? you know, bilingual. So it, it is not a new concept that this, this kind of bilingualism and immersion, how it works, it's been around for at least 50 years. And it's not done in Hong Kong for longer than that many years, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. So it is research backed. Yeah, um, we are almost going to be running out of time. So if you have questions uh, for Jessica or Susan from Mulberry House, um, please put them in the chat now. And um, thanks for Ke Kevin for sharing your experience. Just a struggle, a typical struggle. I, I hear you. I get it. And then a question which I very almost didn't ask you, Jessica, because you and I might slightly disagree on that. But let's go for it. Now, Grace has asked a question that I'm sure everybody is, is wanting to ask. Which international schools or private schools are considered able to provide enough, whatever enough means, 
by literate support. So we have a list on our website. I mean, do you want to just throw out some names of schools, Jessica? Ruth, I will repeat your 10 on your list. <laughs> oh, we, we've got uh, 13 now or 14. we got 13. Mm-hmm. I know the other 13. I, I, I would know the other 13 as well. Actually, it, it depends on your family background. If you are, so I will give Singapore International School as an example. Mm-hmm. Singapore International School does not teach that much Chinese. However, their Chinese level is very high. It's because most of the intake are Chinese families. Mm -hmm. So if you talk about pure support, right, which means the language instruction and the literate instruct, like the literate support in the school that's very strong, it would be ISF, right, CIS. Afterwards, there is Dalton, there is YCIS. YCIS has have moved more into our Chinese now, and Canadian has opened a Chinese stream. Although well, I, I don't think Canadian part of your list, right? Did you really well, move? I published the list before Canadian um, threw us that swerve ball, and um, right. that's a really interesting development, which haven't spoken to them about it. But I imagine that they will only roll that out up the school, so they're going to become a. They'll have a stream of immersion, maybe alongside their international stream. But yeah, interesting development from Canadian school. It shows the demand. It, it, it does. Yeah, it does. We, we have sent quite a lot of kids into Canadian this year. Yeah. So in terms of the school that I've already mentioned, like ISF has currently in the primary years, 70% in Chinese, 30% in English, which means 70% of their intake gets, oh, sorry, 70% of the language instruction, for example, PE, music, literacy, exploration is done in Chinese and swimming is done in Chinese and, and sports and, and dance is done in Chinese. That all of the extra exposure in terms of fluency and literacy is all there. And then you have VSA, who is also doing quite a lot of language instruction, but they don't have sports in, in Chinese. They have sports in either Cantonese or English. So they, they don't have some of the extra subject in Chinese. So that's I think slightly it- different. I think we, we, I'll send you the list. Um, thank you for your question, Grace, which is now increased to about 13 or, or 14 schools. And Jessica's right, they're, they're all a little bit different and it really does depend on your, your family background. I think most of the families that you meet, Jessica, and the ones that we meet, and probably the, the parents on here today, already have both languages in the home in some form or other, which is a huge advantage to to those that don't. So we are going to be running out of time. I had another couple of questions. Or maybe I could just ask you to end with with just telling us a bit. You've got the new site in in Southside in Wong Chot Hang. So tell us a bit how, what's the structure? You've got playgroups and kindergarten and, and how is that all structured? Yeah, so we have always run playgroup on the south side. And so our south side has moved fully there to the new side, which is a much bigger and beautiful site. And so we'll be running zero to six-year-old program starting from playgroup. And playgroup starts at six months all the way through to two years. Between two and three, we do have a transition playgroup or goes directly into pre-nursery independently between two to three. And then we offer K1 to K3. So in the same thing as Typo, we offer a very flexible program to parents depending on what the family mark, like family demand. In the morning, we offer dual language, which means 50 percent of the time are pure Chinese and 50 percent of the time are pure English, right? That is to generate a balanced uh, bilateral and uh, bilingual person. And in the afternoon, based on your family background,
background. So if you are a Chinese family seeking more English, you can enroll in our English-only stream. And if your English-speaking family wants more Chinese, you can get into our Chinese-only stream. And in the afternoon, we let you two three-day option, which means you can choose two-day Chinese, three-day English, or two-day English, three-day Chinese. So that makes up the five-day. Would you advise parents? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of flexibility there. And, and often parents, you know, just a bit, maybe it's a bit overwhelming. Like, what do we choose? Would, would you actually be advising parents based on their family languages, like how they could structure the program? Should they do two days English, three days Chinese? Or I, I, would, I would definitely recommend, like, in a way, balanced bilingual programs, which is 50-50. And so in the afternoon, we're really looking at families who want extra support. So in the morning, if they're doing bilingual, in the afternoon, they feel like their Chinese is really, they, if they're pure American families with no Chinese at home, then in the afternoon, they'll add on the, the Chinese immersion. And if uh, vice versa, if they're a Chinese family with no English at home and no English kind of friends in terms of playgroup and play, playmate, then in the afternoon, I recommend English immersion. But obviously, we think bilingual immersion and, and like dual language is, is probably one of the best that, that achieves the balance. Yeah. Did you have something to add there, Susan? No, just that we do advise parents when they come in right. and they're saying that their child speaks a certain language, but you know, they're, they've got only vocabulary in the other language, then we might suggest to them, all right, well, perhaps this program is better for you where you're getting, you know, this language more times across the week and the second language can be less times across the week. So we do work with parents, but we actually find a lot of parents already come in knowing what their child needs. So they, they come in saying to us, I want the English three times a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a question from um, Kevin. It's an interesting question. We haven't covered it, but maybe it's worth actually making the point. He's asking about a, a kindergarten which has better Chinese than another school and creative kindergarten has been suggested. Now, we should mention that all of the local kindergartens teach their Chinese in Cantonese mm. with a teeny tiny bit of Mandarin and a teeny tiny bit of English. I don't know how much you know about creative, Jessica. It's the one in the, at Lei Chow, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's a Canton, I think it's a local Cantonese. School. Yeah, and yeah. I think the if they, I don't know their language. I don't know their language instruction. Cantonese English household mm-hmm. household, and so if they were maybe the parents could ask them about how much Chinese, how, like if we're talking about Mandarin Chinese, we could ask them how Mandarin Chinese is taught. Is that taught through with a Mandarin Chinese lead teacher in the classroom the whole day or for okay, half the time? Yeah. Or is the Mandarin Chinese teacher going into the classroom for 15 to 30 minutes time? That, that there is a difference there. So, yeah. I mean, the way that I don't know if we've got time just quickly. The way that Mandarin is taught to local children is is unusual, right? For me, I feel like it's actually just pronunciation correction from the Cantonese to the Mandarins. That's why they introduce pinyin. It's a different process, isn't it, than if you start immersion from, from a very young age? Yeah, I would say that Cantonese children acquire Mandarin Chinese versus a expat family or mixed family or English-speaking kid acquiring Mandarin Chinese is very, very different. The way we teach Mandarin Chinese is the same way that mainland China, in a way, teaches that it is between zero to six, the kids is at home interacting with children, uh, interacting with family that speak purely Mandarin Chinese. And that means 
Pinging is should not be introduced because pinging is a tool. It is like when you look up the dictionary, like in China, people look up in biao in 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 China to look up that word pronunciation. But the way that we're teaching is that we're not saying, "Hey, this word to spell this way." We're saying, "This is a laptop. This is a, a cup." We're doing is as in learning about inquiring about the world. But Cantonese children learn it slightly differently because Cantonese children are already learning Cantonese, and between Cantonese and Mandarin, there are two things. Number one, pronunciation is different. Cantonese has Nine tone and Mandarin Chinese has four tones, so it's the conversion of the tone. Mm-hmm. Secondly, some of the word and the the dialogue is slightly different, so it, it's a local it's a local language kind of with an accent, right? So yeah. what's in Mandarin Chinese might not be the same within Cantonese, so then they have to make the correction. So the way they learn it is that they already know that language and then they make a slight movement versus a pure English, like a pure Chinese immersion environment. It's a different way of teaching. Yeah, totally. So thank you for your question, Kevin. I can chat with you about that later. Karen has a question. Now the questions are coming in. Um, We didn't talk about uh, one parent, one language. Should one parent only speak one language at home? Of course, like OPOL is one of the most recommended method. But I think I've read so much about this now that some of the parents really have challenges. If your child is born and you start with OPOL and you keep going, that's one of the best way. But a lot of the time it's because OPOL doesn't work because the family needs to have a common language, right? Between the mom and the dad or maybe the grandparents, they have to have a common language. So sometimes the child suddenly figure out, oh, actually you can speak English. Your common language before was French and Chinese. Now you can speak English. So if you started very early, that commitment can continue. But if you start in the middle, you will end up with struggles. And the way that I would normally recommend to parent is that you could do a dedicated time, OPOL. So it means that if I speak Chinese, I spend uh, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the afternoon, nine to 10, I just speak Chinese. That's my OPOL. And then gradually I increase that time. Same thing as let's say daddy speaks English, OPOL for that. So that way it's easier for, for families to navigate through because we also want family harmony. They need to have a common language. Yeah. I just want to add one caveat to that though. I mean, we we mostly see parents who speak English at home when English is not their native language. That can actually be very detrimental. So it really depends on the parent's comfort level, proficiency. And at the end of the day, like you say, it's it's harmony. What feels natural and normal for you as a family? So it, it's a big topic, um, Karen. Thank you for your question. Um, maybe you can connect with Jessica and, and chat more. We are going to have to end because we've gone slightly over time. So thank you to Jessica, yeah, trainer, and Susan Ward from Mulberry House. Thank you to everyone that attended. Uh, we will be in touch with you all to give you some follow-up details of how you can get in touch. And um, you're offering trial sessions at Mulberry House, if I'm not wrong. Yes, we'll, we'll give everybody all of the details. So everyone can go and have lunch if you haven't already done that yet. I haven't done that yet. Thank you for joining us. I just want to ask, we build this bilingualism struggles and solutions. Jessica, what's the solution? The solution is to think longer term and think early and think long, not to think about short-term gain. Short-term gain brings a lot of pain to the families, like what I said just now. Five minutes immersion is already long enough to do for a month, and then you increase to a 10 minutes immersion and 20 minutes immersion. Because the point is that language is a, it, it has to be an active thing. So if you send your kids to a language school and your kids hate it, And by the time when they can choose, they will ditch the language. The point is to think early and think long. In the longer term, I want my kids truly love it and truly use it. 
And then that way, you know, they would want to go to China. They would want to go to Taiwan. They want to use it. If you think short term, I want my kids to learn so much characters, speak mm. so much. And, and when the time when they can make the choice, they're just like, I don't want to speak this language because the language comes from my mouth and I have the choice of not speaking it. So it's really to think long. And Susan, mine be, what's the solution? Mine would be um, play-based immersion. I, I've seen it in action. I've seen mm-hmm. the power of it. As early as possible. When do your playgroups start? Four or six months? Uh, six months. We, we are happy to do four months, but generally parents come with six months old. But we can do earlier if needed. Yeah, great. Thank you um, both. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you Thank for you, everybody uh, for tuning in. And uh, that's it. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Hong Kong education system and parenting and education news and trends, check out our back catalogue, all available to download for free. You can also head over to our YouTube, Facebook or website for lots of free useful information for parents and educators. Links in the show notes. Until next time.